0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Today's reading by Kara Schallenberg. org Old Christmas by Washington Irving. Chapter 5 The Christmas Dinner. Lo, now is come the joyfullest feast, let every man be jolly. Each room with ivy-leaves is dressed, and every post with holly. Now all our neighbours' chimneys smoke, and Christmas-blocks are burning. Their ovens they with baked meats choke, and all their spits are turning. Without the door let sorrow lie, and if, for cold it hap to die, we'll bury it in a Christmas-pie, and evermore be merry." Withers's Juvenilia. I had finished my toilet and was loitering with Frank Bracebridge in the library, when we heard a distant thwacking sound, which he informed me was a signal for the serving up of the dinner. The squire kept up old customs in the kitchen as well as hall, and the rolling pin, struck upon the dresser by the cook, summoned the servants to carry in the meats. Just in this nick the cook knocked thrice, and all the waiters in a trice his summons did obey. Each serving man, with dish in hand, marched boldly up like our train band, presented, and away. Sir John Suckling The dinner was served up in the great hall, where the squire always held his Christmas banquet. A blazing, crackling fire of logs had been heaped on to warm the spacious apartment, and the flame went sparkling and wreathing up the wide-mouthed chimney. The great picture of the crusader and his white horse had been profusely decorated with greens for the occasion, and holly and ivy had likewise been wreathed around the helmet and weapons on the opposite wall, which I understood were the arms of the same warrior. I must own, by the by, I had strong doubts about the authenticity of painting and armour, as having belonged to the crusader, they certainly having the stamp of more recent days. But I was told that the painting had been so considered time out of mind, and that as to the armour, it had been found in a lumber-room, and elevated to its present situation by the squire, who at once determined it to be the armour of the family hero and as he was absolute authority on all such subjects to his own household, the matter had passed into current acceptation. A sideboard was set out just under this chivalric trophy, on which was a display of plate that might have vied, at least in variety, with Belshazzar's parade of the vessels of the temple. Flagons, cans, cups, beakers, goblets, basins, and ewers— "'the gorgeous utensils of good companionship "'that had gradually accumulated through many generations of jovial housekeepers. "'Before these stood the two yule candles, "'beaming like two stars of the first magnitude. "'Other lights were distributed in branches, "'and the whole array glittered like a firmament of silver. "'We were ushered into this banqueting scene with the sound of minstrelsy.' the old harper being seated on a stool beside the fireplace, and twanging his instrument with a vast deal more power than melody. Never did Christmas board display a more goodly and gracious assemblage of countenances. Those who were not handsome were at least happy, and happiness is a rare improver of your hard-favoured visage. I always consider an old English family as well worth studying as a collection of Holbein's portraits, or Albert Dürer's prints. There is much antiquarian lore to be acquired, much knowledge of the physiognomies of former times. Perhaps it may be from having continually before their eyes those rows of old family portraits, with which the mansions of this country are stocked certain it is that the quaint features of antiquity are often most faithfully perpetuated in these ancient lines and i have traced an old family nose through a whole picture gallery legitimately handed down from generation to generation almost from the time of the conquest something of the kind was to be observed in the worthy company around me many of their faces had evidently originated in a gothic age and been merely copied by succeeding generations; and there was one little girl, in particular, of staid demeanour, with a high Roman nose, and an antique vinegar aspect, who was a great favourite of the squire's, being, as he said, a Bracebridge all over, and the very counterpart of one of his ancestors who figured in the court of Henry the Eighth. The parson said grace, which was not a short familiar one such as is commonly addressed to the Deity in these unceremonious days, but a long, courtly, well-worded one of the ancient school. There was now a pause, as if something was expected, when suddenly the butler entered the hall with some degree of bustle. He was attended by a servant on each side, with a large wax-light, and bore a silver dish on which was an enormous pig's head, decorated with rosemary, with a lemon in its mouth, which was placed with great formality at the head of the table. The moment this pageant made its appearance, the harper struck up a flourish, at the conclusion of which the young Oxonian, on receiving a hint from the squire, gave, with an air of most comic gravity, an old carol, the first verse of which was as follows— Caput apri de ferro, Redens laudes domino, The boar's head in hand bring I, With garlands gay and rosemary, I pray you all sing merrily, quiestis in convivio. Though prepared to witness many of these little eccentricities, From being apprised of the peculiar hobby of mine host, Yet I confess The parade with which so odd a dish was introduced somewhat perplexed me, until I gathered from the conversation of the squire and the parson that it was meant to represent the bringing-in of the boar's head, a dish formerly served up with much ceremony, and the sound of minstrelsy and song at great tables on Christmas Day. "'I like the old custom,' said the squire, "'not merely because it is stately and pleasing in itself,' but because it was observed at the College of Oxford, at which I was educated. When I hear the old song chanted, it brings to mind the time when I was young and gamesome, and the noble old College Hall, and my fellow students loitering about in their black gowns, many of whom, poor lads, are now in their graves. The parson, however, whose mind was not haunted by such associations, and who was always more taken up with the text than the sentiment, objected to the Oxonian's version of the carol, which he affirmed was different from that sung at college. He went on with the dry perseverance of the commentator to give the college reading, accompanied by sundry annotations. Addressing himself at first to the company at large, but finding their attention gradually diverted to other talk and other objects, he lowered his tone as his number of auditors diminished until he concluded his remarks in an under to a fat-headed old gentleman next him, who was silently engaged in the discussion of a huge plateful of turkey. The table was literally loaded with good cheer, and presented an epitome of country abundance in this season of overflowing larders. A distinguished post was allotted to ancient sirloin, as mine host termed it, being, as he added, THE STANDARD OF OLD ENGLISH HOSPITALITY, AND A JOINT OF GOODLY PRESENCE, AND FULL OF EXPECTATION. THERE WERE SEVERAL DISHES QUAINTLY DECORATED, AND WHICH HAD EVIDENTLY SOMETHING TRADITIONARY IN THEIR EMBELLISHMENTS, BUT ABOUT WHICH, AS I DID NOT LIKE TO APPEAR curious, I ASKED NO QUESTIONS. I COULD NOT, HOWEVER, BUT NOTICE A PIE, MAGNIFICENTLY DECORATED WITH PEACOCK'S FEATHERS, IN imitation OF THE TAIL OF THAT BIRD, which overshadowed a considerable tract of the table. This, the squire confessed, with some little hesitation, was a pheasant pie, though a peacock pie was certainly the most authentical. But there had been such a mortality among the peacocks this season, that he could not prevail upon himself to have one killed. It would be tedious, perhaps, to my wiser readers, who may not have that foolish fondness for odd and obsolete things to which I am a little given, were I to mention the other makeshifts of this worthy old humorist, by which he was endeavouring to follow up, though at humble distance, the quaint customs of antiquity. I was pleased, however, to see the respect shown to his whims by his children and relatives, who indeed entered readily into the full spirit of them, and seemed all well versed in their parts, having doubtless been present at many a rehearsal. I was amused, too, at the air of profound gravity with which the butler and other servants executed the duties assigned them, however eccentric. They had an old-fashioned look, having, for the most part, been brought up in the household, and grown into keeping with the antiquated mansion and the humours of its lord, and most probably looked upon all his whimsical regulation as the established laws of honourable housekeeping. When the cloth was removed, the butler brought in a huge silver vessel of rare and curious workmanship, which he placed before the squire. Its appearance was hailed with acclamation, being the Wassel bowl so renowned in Christmas festivity. The contents had been prepared by the squire himself, for it was a beverage in the skilful mixture of which he particularly prided himself, alleging that it was too abstruse and complex for the comprehension of an ordinary servant. It was a potation, indeed, that might well make the heart of a toper leap within him, being composed of the richest and raciest wines, highly spiced and sweetened, with roasted apples bobbing about the surface. The old gentleman's whole countenance beamed with a serene look of indwelling delight as he stirred this mighty bowl. Having raised it to his lips, with a hearty wish of a Merry Christmas to all present, he sent it brimming around the board for every one to follow his example, according to the primitive style, pronouncing it, the ancient fountain of good feeling where all hearts met together. There was much laughing and rallying as the honest emblem of Christmas joviality circulated, and was kissed rather coyly by the ladies. When it reached Master Simon, he raised it in both hands, and with the air of a boon companion, struck up an old wassail chanson. The brown bowl, the merry brown bowl, as it goes round about a, uh, fill still. Let the world say what it will, and drink your fill all outa. The deep can, the merry deep can, as thou dost freely quaffa, sing, fling, be as merry as a king, and sound a lusty laffa. From Poor Robin's Almanac. Much of the conversation during dinner turned upon family topics to which I was a stranger. There was, however, a great deal of rallying of Master Simon, about some gay widow, with whom he was accused of having a flirtation. This attack was commenced by the ladies, but it was continued throughout the dinner by the fat-headed old gentleman next to the parson, with the persevering assiduity of a slow-hound, being one of those long-winded jokers who, though rather dull at starting game, are unrivaled for their talents in hunting it down. At every pause in the general conversation he renewed his bantering in pretty much the same terms, winking hard at me with both eyes whenever he gave Master Simon what he considered a home thrust. The latter, indeed, seemed fond of being teased on the subject, as old bachelors are apt to be, and he took occasion to inform me in an undertone that the lady in question was a prodigiously fine woman, and drove her own curricle. The dinner-time passed away in this flow of innocent hilarity, and, though the old hall may have resounded in its time with many a scene of broader rout and revel, yet I doubt whether it ever witnessed more honest and genuine enjoyment. How easy it is for one benevolent being to diffuse pleasure around him, and how truly is a kind heart a fountain of gladness, making everything in its vicinity to freshen into smiles. The joyous disposition of the worthy squire was perfectly contagious. He was happy himself, and disposed to make all the world happy, and the little eccentricities of his humour did but season, in a manner, the sweetness of his philanthropy. When the ladies had retired, the conversation as usual became still more animated. Many good things were broached which had been thought of during dinner, but which would not exactly do for a lady's ear, and though I cannot positively affirm that there was much wit uttered, yet I have certainly heard many contests of rare wit produce much less laughter. Wit, after all, is a mighty tart, pungent ingredient, and much too acid for some stomachs, but honest good humour is the oil and wine of a merry meeting and there is no jovial companionship equal to that where the jokes are rather small, and the laughter abundant. The squire told several long stories of early college pranks and adventures, in some of which the parson had been a sharer, though in looking at the latter it required some effort of imagination to figure such a little dark anatomy of a man into the perpetrator of a madcap gamble. Indeed, the two college chums presented pictures of what men may be made by their different lots in life. The squire had left the university to live lustily on his paternal domains, in the vigorous enjoyment of prosperity and sunshine, and had flourished on to a hearty and florid old age, whilst the poor parson, on the contrary, had dried and withered away among dusty tomes in the silence and shadows of his study. Still there seemed to be a spark of almost extinguished fire, feebly glimmering in the bottom of his soul. And as the squire hinted at a sly story of the parson and a pretty milkmaid, whom they once met on the banks of the Isis, the old gentleman made an alphabet of faces, which, as far as I could decipher his physiognomy, I verily believe was indicative of laughter. indeed. I have rarely met with an old gentleman who took absolutely offence at the imputed gallantries of his youth. I found the tide of wine and wassail fast gaining on the dry land of sober judgment. The company grew merrier and louder as their jokes grew duller. Master Simon was in as chirping a humour as a grasshopper filled with dew. His old songs grew of a warmer complexion and he began to talk maudlin about the widow. He even gave a long song about the wooing of a widow, which he informed me he had gathered from an excellent black-letter work, entitled, Cupid's Solicitor for Love, containing store of good advice for bachelors, and which he promised to lend me. The first verse was to this effect. He that will woo a widow must not dally. He must make hay while the sun doth shine. He must not stand with her, shall I, shall I? But boldly say, Widow, thou must be mine. This song inspired the fat-headed old gentleman, who made several attempts to tell a rather broad story out of Joe Miller that was pat to the purpose, but he always stuck in the middle, everybody recollecting the latter part, excepting himself. The parson, too, began to show the effects of good cheer, having gradually settled down into a doze, and his wig sitting most suspiciously on one side. Just at this juncture we were summoned to the drawing-room, and, I suspect, at the private instigation of mine host, whose joviality seemed always tempered with a proper love of decorum. After the dinner-table was removed, the hall was given up to the younger members of the family, who, prompted to all kind of noisy mirth by the Oxonian and Master Simon, made its old walls ring with their merriment, as they played at romping games. I delight in witnessing the gambols of children, and particularly at this happy holiday season, and could not help stealing out of the drawing-room on hearing one of their peals of laughter. I found them at the game of blind man's buff. Master Simon, who was the leader of their revels, and seemed on all occasions to fulfil the office of that ancient potentate, the Lord of Misrule, was blinded in the midst of the hall. The little beings were as busy about him as the mock fairies about Falstaff, pinching him, plucking at the skirts of his coat, and tickling him with straws. One fine, blue-eyed girl of about thirteen, with her flaxen hair all in beautiful confusion, her frolic face in a glow, her frock half torn off her shoulders, a complete picture of a romp, was the chief tormentor, and from the slyness with which Master Simon avoided the smaller game, and hemmed this wild little nymph in corners, and obliged her to jump shrieking over chairs. I suspected the rogue of being not a whit more blinded than was convenient. When I returned to the drawing-room, I found the company seated around the fire, listening to the parson, who was deeply ensconced in a high-backed oaken chair, the work of some cunning artificer of yore which had been brought from the library for his particular accommodation. From this venerable piece of furniture, with which his shadowy figure and dark, weazen face so admirably accorded, he was dealing forth strange accounts of popular superstitions and legends of the surrounding country, with which he had become acquainted in the course of his antiquarian researches. I am half inclined to think that the old gentleman was himself somewhat tinctured with superstition, as men are very apt to be who live a recluse and studious life, in a sequestered part of the country, and pore over black-letter tracts, so often filled with the marvellous and supernatural. He gave us several anecdotes of the fancies of the neighbouring peasantry, concerning the effigy of the crusader which lay on the tomb by the church altar. As it was the only monument of the kind in that part of the country, it had always been regarded with feelings of superstition by the good wives of the village. It was said to get up from the tomb and walk the rounds of the churchyard in stormy nights, particularly when it thundered, and one old woman, whose cottage bordered on the churchyard, had seen it through the windows of the church when the moon shone, slowly pacing up and down the aisles. It was the belief that some wrong had been left unredressed by the deceased, or some treasure hidden which kept the spirit in a state of trouble and restlessness. Some talked of gold and jewels buried in the tomb, over which the spectre kept watch, and there was a story current of a sexton in old times who endeavoured to break his way to the coffin at night, but just as he reached it received a violent blow from the marble hand of the effigy, which stretched him senseless on the pavement. These tales were often laughed at by some of the sturdier among the rustics, yet when night came on, there were many of the stoutest unbelievers that were shy of venturing alone in the footpath that led across the churchyard. From these and other anecdotes that followed, the crusader appeared to be the favorite hero of ghost stories throughout the vicinity. His picture, which hung up in the hall, was thought by the servants to have something supernatural about it. "'for they remarked that, in whatever part of the hall you went, "'the eyes of the warrior were still fixed on you. "'The old porter's wife, too, at the lodge, "'who had been born and brought up in the family, "'and was a great gossip among the maidservants, "'affirmed that in her young days she had often heard say that, "'on Midsummer Eve, when it is well known all kinds of ghosts, "'goblins, and fairies become visible and walk abroad,' The crusader used to mount his horse, come down from his picture, ride about the house, down the avenue, and so to the church, to visit the tomb, on which occasion the church-door most civilly swung open of itself, not that he needed it, for he rode through closed gates and even stone walls, and had been seen by one of the dairy-maids to pass between two bars of the great park-gate, making himself as thin as a sheet of paper. All these superstitions, I found, had been very much countenanced by the squire, who, though not superstitious himself, was very fond of seeing others so. He listened to every goblin tale of the neighbouring gossips with infinite gravity, and held the porter's wife in high favour on account of her talent for the marvellous. He was himself a great reader of old legends and romances, and often lamented that he could not believe in them, for a superstitious person, he thought, must live in a kind of fairyland. Whilst we were all attention to the parson's stories, our ears were suddenly assailed by a burst of heterogeneous sounds from the hall, in which was mingled something like the clang of rude minstrelsy, with the uproar of many small voices and girlish laughter. The door suddenly flew open, and a train came trooping into the room that might almost have been mistaken for the breaking up of the court of fairy. That indefatigable spirit, Master Simon, in the faithful discharge of his duties as Lord of Misrule, had conceived the idea of a Christmas mummery, or masking, and having called in to his assistance the Oxonian and the young officer, who were equally ripe for anything that should occasion romping and merriment, they had carried it into instant effect. The old housekeeper had been consulted, the antique clothes-presses and wardrobes rummaged, and made to yield up the relics of finery that had not seen the light for several generations. The younger part of the company had been privately convened from the parlour and hall, and the whole had been bedizened out into a burlesque imitation of an antique mask. Master Simon led the van, as ancient Christmas, quaintly apparelled in a ruff, a short cloak, which had very much the aspect of one of the old housekeeper's petticoats, and a hat that might have served for a village steeple, and must indubitably have figured in the days of the Covenanters. From under this his nose curved boldly forth, flushed with a frost-bitten bloom, that seemed the very trophy of a December blast. He was accompanied by the blue-eyed romp, dished up as Dame Mince-Pie, in the venerable magnificence of faded brocade, long stomacher, peaked hat, and high-heeled shoes. The young officer appeared as Robin Hood, in a sporting dress of Kendall Green, and a foraging cap with a gold tassel. The costume, to be sure, did not bear testimony to deep research, and there was an evident eye to the picturesque. "'natural to a young gallant in the presence of his mistress. "'The fair Julia hung on his arm in a pretty rustic dress as Maid Marian. "'The rest of the train had been metamorphosed in various ways. "'The girls trussed up in the finery of the ancient bells of the Bracebridge line, "'and the striplings bewhiskered with burnt cork, "'and gravely clad in broad skirts, hanging sleeves, and full-bottomed wigs.' to represent the characters of roast-beef, plum-pudding, and other worthies celebrated in ancient maskings. The whole was under the control of the Oxonian, in the appropriate character of Misrule, and I observed that he exercised rather a mischievous sway with his wand over the smaller personages of the pageant. The eruption of this motley crew, with beat of drum, according to ancient custom, was the consummation of uproar and merriment. Master Simon covered himself with glory by the stateliness with which, as ancient Christmas, he walked a minuet with the peerless, though giggling, Dame Mincepie. It was followed by a dance of all the characters which, from its medley of costumes, seemed as though the old family portraits had skipped down from their frames to join in the sport. Different centuries were figuring at cross-hands and right and left, the dark ages were cutting pirouettes and rigadoons, and the days of Queen Bess jigging merrily down the middle, through a line of succeeding generations. THE WORTHY SQUIRE CONTEMPLATED THESE FANTASTIC SPORTS, AND THIS RESURRECTION OF HIS OLD WARDROBE, WITH THE SIMPLE RELISH OF CHILDISH DELIGHT. HE STOOD, CHUCKLING AND RUBBING HIS HANDS, AND SCARCELY HEARING A WORD THE PARSON SAID, NOTWITHSTANDING THAT THE LATTER WAS DISCOURSING MOST AUTHENTICALLY ON THE ANCIENT AND STATELY DANCE AT THE PAEON, OR PEACOCK, FROM WHICH HE CONCEIVED THE MINUET TO BE DERIVED. For my part I was in a continual excitement from the varied scenes of whim and innocent gaiety passing before me. It was inspiring to see wild-eyed frolic and warm-hearted hospitality breaking out from among the chills and glooms of winter, and old age throwing off his apathy, and catching once more the freshness of youthful enjoyment.' I felt also an interest in the scene, from the consideration that these fleeting customs were posting fast into oblivion, and that this was, perhaps, the only family in England in which the whole of them were still punctiliously observed. There was a quaintness, too, mingled with all this revelry that gave it a peculiar zest. It was suited to the time and place, and as the old manor-house almost reeled with mirth and wassail— It seemed echoing back the joviality of long-departed years. But enough of Christmas and its gambols. It is time for me to pause in this garrulity. Methinks I hear the questions asked by my graver readers. To what purpose is all this? How is the world to be made wiser by this talk? Alas, is there not wisdom enough extant for the instruction of the world? And if not, are there not thousands of abler pens labouring for its improvement? It is so much pleasanter to please than to instruct to play the companion rather than the preceptor. What, after all, is the might of wisdom that I could throw into the mass of knowledge, or how am I sure that my sagest deductions may be safe guides for the opinions of others? But in writing to amuse. If I fail, the only evil is my own disappointment. If, however, I can, by any lucky chance, in these days of evil, rub out one wrinkle from the brow of care, or beguile the heavy heart of one moment of sorrow, if I can now and then penetrate through the gathering film of misanthropy, prompt a benevolent view of human nature, and make my reader more in good humour with his fellow-beings and himself, surely, Surely I shall not, then, have written entirely in vain. THE END End of Old Christmas by Washington Irving Recorded October 25, 2005, in Oceanside, California